we continue our Harmony of the Gospels, we get this uh, event in the life of Jesus, in Jesus' life, we see in all four Gospels. And for the sake of time, I'm going to read a harmonized account. So I'm going to take from all those four Gospels and read it just once. I'd encourage you, if you wanted to pick one of these passages to read as I'm going along, I'd either select the John 18 passage, verses 2 through 11, or the passage over in Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. So pick one of those, and then you'll see some of the added details that the other Gospels bring to the account. Now Judas also, the one betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus often gathered there with his disciples. Judas then, having received a cohort and servants from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now the one betraying him had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And immediately having come up to Jesus, Jesus said to him, Judas, with a kiss, are you betraying the Son of Man? Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Jesus then, knowing all the things coming upon him, came forward and he said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. Now Judas also, the one betraying him, stood with them, and when he said to them, I am, they drew backward and fell to the ground. Therefore, again, he asked them, Whom do you seek? Now they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, permit these to go in order that he might fulfill the word that he spoke, that the ones whom you have given to me, I have not lost any of them. Then having come, they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now the ones around him, having seen what was going to happen, said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest Malchus's, or his priest slave Malchus's right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup, the one which the Father has given me, might I not drink it? For all the ones taking swords by the sword will perish. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will present me now more than twelve legions of angels? How then might the Scriptures be fulfilled and thus this must happen? But Jesus answered and said, No more of this. And He touched his ear and healed him. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, As upon a robber, you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Each day in the temple I was sitting teaching, and you didn't seize me then. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. All this has happened so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples fled away. And a certain man was following him, having been clothed in fine linen about his body, and they seized him, but leaving behind the linen, he fled away naked. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant us understanding of this text, 
a rightful appraisal of the historical situation, of the grammatical context, of any figurative or literary devices that might be utilized. But then after having understood it, we pray that You would make deep and rich application to our hearts and souls. That we would respond rightly to You. That that response would be seen in our actions towards one another as well. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Philip Ryken comments, The same God who gave us hearts for loving gave us lips for kissing. The same God who gave us hearts for loving gave us lips for kissing. Kisses are one of the closest, surest, sweetest expressions of love and affection that we have to give to one another. Certainly in America, in which kissing is not the normal exchange between just typical everyday greetings, this feeling might be all the more emphasized as it is reserved for very special, close relationships. A kiss means something. It denotes loyalty, care, closeness. Kisses are expressions of love. Consider a father kissing his daughter at bedtime, or a mother kissing her son before he goes off to war, or a couple kissing one another after they've been apart from some time. We ought to thank God that He has given us this beautiful expression of love. I'm sure that Pastor Randy has become an expert in kissing. Why is that? Such a strange comment. Randy's looking with the strangest of looks. Well, Due to the fact that he's in a videography business in which he goes to weddings all the time, I'm sure he's an expert in watching multitudes of kisses as every wedding is sure to have a fair amount of kissing happening at it. There's something precious about that moment. You know, there's something awkward and precious about that moment, isn't there? Everyone wonders, how is the kiss going to be happen? What's going to occur? There's a little bit of nervousness associated with it. And yet there's also something very, very precious about it. What I think is special about the kiss in a wedding ceremony is that it's an expression that, yes, first and foremost, marriage is about commitment and loyalty. To death do we part. We make those vows before God and witnesses. But the kiss also symbolizes that there is to be tenderness and affection and passion in the midst of that commitment. It's not some dry, cold, dusty allegiance where we just grit it out. And, you know, grit our teeth and say, oh, stay married. But there's to be love and affection and joy. Not some cold allegiance, but a warm one. So we must fight every day for our commitments to shine forth in pure joy and love and affection. Probably one of my last things I like hearing from people when they're talking about marital difficulties is say, well, I'm just not happy. And so, God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to leave my spouse. Well, you're right. God desires that you be happy. But the path to that happiness is not found in leaving your spouse. That's the problem. The path to happiness is found in finding your delight and joy in the Lord Himself and then finding it your joy and delight to serve others no matter how they treat you. To love them no matter what. Many kisses may be remembered. In preparing for this sermon, I googled famous kisses. And you'll find even Time Magazine last year had an article on this. It was like a Valentine's issue. Discussing everything from chocolate kisses, made by Hershey's, 
to Usain Bolt kissing the track after he had won the 100 and 200 meter London Games events in the Olympics, to the Guinness Book of World Records, do you know that the longest kiss ever clocked went over 58 hours? To even that famous picture, I'm sure some of you, most of you have seen it, uh, right after victory in Japan, it was in Times Square, New York, and there's a sailor kissing a nurse. It's one of the most iconic kisses that's ever been captured on film, and most many people talk about that picture a whole lot still today. But the kiss that we consider today is one of the most remembered for a completely different reason. Today we turn to perhaps the most infamous kiss of all time, Judas's kiss of betrayal, what we could call a kiss of death. Certainly what makes this so memorable is that what appears on the surface to be to signify love and affection is really an expression of contempt and treachery. And the fact that this comes from one of Jesus' own disciples, one of the twelve, makes it all the more ghastly. Here we have Jesus, the second Adam. He's entered into the Garden of Gethsemane, a favorite retreat place for him and his disciples. And now he's emerging from that garden. We think about the first Adam. The first Adam emerged from the Garden of Eden as a failure, having rejected and disobeyed God's express command. But Jesus emerges from the Garden of Gethsemane, triumphing over Satan's temptations. He now went out to crush the serpent's head. In Eden, Adam fell. But here in Gethsemane, Christ conquers So while Jesus is praying and the disciples, as we saw last time, were sleeping, the mob, we now are made aware of, was assembling. Jesus is praying, his disciples are sleeping, and the mob is assembling. Now the time for final conflict has come. So Jesus rouses his disciples and he announces to them in Matthew 26, 45 and 46, See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus is not running from this hour. He strides forth, ready to meet the kiss of death head on. Here in a sermon entitled The Kiss of Death, I want to see three movements. We're going to walk through these passages with three movements. The first is the betrayer's deception. Point number one, the betrayer's deception. And we see this deception comes as a surprise to the disciples. Just a couple of hours ago, Jesus had foretold this betrayal. Yet none of the disciples suspected who would do such a thing. Again, Matthew 26, 20-22. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. This is at the Last Supper. As they were eating, He said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray Me. Being deeply grieved... The disciples, one after the other, began to say to him, Surely it's not I, Lord. Notice, no one at the table is going, It's Judas! There's question even about their own heart. Is it me? Nobody suspects Judas. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make specific mention of the fact that this Judas was one of the twelve. Now, obviously, we already know he's one of the twelve. But all Matthew, Mark, and Luke all emphasize this fact. Probably it's a note of that surprise and disgust in the description. This was one of our own, so the disciples thought. This act of treachery happened from the inner circle of followers. Judas gives us forever proof 
that just because you associate with Jesus, it does not mean that you're a follower of His. There are a great number of people who wear Christian shirts, put fishes on the backs of cars, carry thick and heavy Bibles, go to church regularly, who are lost, who don't know Jesus. And some of them are even wolves in sheep's clothing, meant on the destruction of the church. Judas is forever proof that such individuals exist. Let me remind you of the plot that was already in motion. We had it read a little bit this morning. Remember, the Sanhedrin had already determined that they needed to put Jesus to death. The plot really began in earnest after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Here we've got this man who was dead in the tomb for days. And now he's been raised to life. And this news travels back to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. And they say, we've got to get rid of this guy quickly. John 11. The chief priests and Pharisees convened a council. Verse 47. And we're saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. You see the concerns here? We're concerned we're going to lose the populace. They're going to follow him instead of us. Selfishness. We're also concerned we're going to lose our spots. Our privileged position. Rome's going to come. They're not going to like this going on. And it's going to be trouble for us. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now John comments on this, right? He gives us an editorial comment on this. He says, The high priest had no idea just how prophetic that statement was. The high priest is just thinking about his position, his, their power. But there's a much fuller significance to those words, isn't there? For according to God, the Father's sovereign plan, His Son would die in the place of others so they might live. It says, from that day on, they planned together to kill Him. Now, the chief priests and Pharisees had given order that if anyone knew where He was, they were to report it, that they might seize Him. Now, they further talked about this, and in Matthew 26, verse 5, we hear that after thinking about Passover and all the people around, maybe we need to wait until after the feast. Again, they're concerned because Jesus was somewhat popular among the populace. Maybe we should wait, but we'll keep our eyes open for a good opportunity. Let us know if anyone knows about him and how we might get him. Well, Judas is determined to betray Jesus. And perhaps upon Jesus at the Lord at that last supper table, when he indicates to Judas that he knows what Judas is about to do, Judas even asks him, "Is it me?" Jesus says, "You've said it yourself." I wonder if at this moment we we're told that Satan enters into Judas's heart and out Judas goes. Jesus even says to Judas, "What you do, do quickly." John thirteen twenty seven. Judas is probably like, "Uh oh, he's on to me. I better get this done quickly." Judas knew where to find Jesus after he'd left the upper room. We're told in John 18, verse 2, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. The place was the Garden of Gethsemane. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Okay. So here's now this secret plot, and it's cloaked in darkness. We're told that the soldiers and people brought with them lanterns and torches. So we know the time of day, right? We're into the evening hours. We don't know how late, but it's night. 
This was most likely due again to the favor that Jesus still held with the general populace. They didn't want to incite the crowds and cause a riot. Now, while the disciples were surprised about Judas, Jesus is not at all surprised about what's going on. Jesus had already indicated on several occasions his knowledge of Judas's intentions. He knows that Judas intends to betray him. And even as if to give one more opportunity to Judas, he says to Judas, again, the exact timing and arrangement of these statements could be debated, but the way I would handle it is, he says to Judas, as Judas is approaching him, friend, do you want to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then after Judas kisses him, friend, do what you came to do. Judas may think he's being sneaky and tricky, that no one's the wiser, but he's woefully mistaken. Jesus is all the wiser. Yet even Jesus' gracious disclosure of his own foreknowledge of what Judas will do doesn't do anything to change Judas' actions or heart. Nor does Jesus' kindness. Even now here at the point of betrayal, Jesus refers to him as friend. It can be translated comrade or companion. What grace. What magnanimity. Judas repays Jesus' foreknowledge and Jesus' kindness with the most abhorrent sort of gesture. A kiss dripping with duplicity. A kiss of betrayal. Judas chose a sign of friendship to identify Jesus to the guards. He speaks to Jesus and addresses him with the title Rabbi. And then he kisses him. We find particularly unsettling those things which have the appearance of innocence and beauty, which are then distorted or made ugly. I believe there's something particularly unsettling about this that the horror film industry plays upon. I myself cannot stand horror films. But even in seeing brief previews for them, I find that nearly any nursery rhyme is ripe for horror films. Because it twists something that is precious and seemingly, seemingly innocent and untainted and undefiled into something that's patently and obviously evil. Give it the right voicing and any nursery rhyme becomes a horror flick. It's so unsettling to us because it takes something that's sweet and precious and it turns it and distorts it. Suffering and death are horrible things no matter what, but where there is an especially deep grief is when that suffering comes at the hands of those who are closest to you. When it's your best friends that bring these things. Perhaps the second most infamous betrayal is that which we remember through Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. When Caesar notices, as he's being assassinated, as he turns and notices that Brutus is there in the mix. And the famous line, A tu Brute? Caesar's saying, And you too, Brutus? You, Brutus? As he dies. Now, the difference between Caesar and Jesus is Jesus is not taken unaware. He knows that Judas is coming. He's told Judas to his face he's about to do it. He's not taken unaware by it. I know this side of eternity, we will not see perfect justice met, but we know that God will one day deal all wrongs 
perfectly with his perfect righteousness. Interesting. Uh, Dante, in his book, The Inferno, part of the Divine Comedy, he pictures in the ninth circle of hell, like the, in his, again, his picture of what hell is like. In the ninth circle of hell, you have Satan, and he's got wings, and he's encased at least halfway up in ice. And his wings are flapping vigorously to try to get himself out. But the more that he flaps, the more he freezes the ice below him, thus keeping him perpetually frustrated in, in this, this place. Satan is pictured in Dante's Inferno as having three faces. And in the, both the left and the right faces, there are two mouths that are chewing on Brutus and Cassius. Cassius was also there betraying Julius Caesar. So Dante pictures these two betray, betrayers at the, for his, for his manner of speaking, at the lowest part of hell, being chomped on by Satan himself. And he reserves the middle mouth for Judas. The other two guys are being chomped on feet first. Judas is being chomped on head first while Satan's claws are ripping the flesh off of Satan, uh, Judas's back. That's the picture that, that Dante gives. You know, he's trying, to, he's trying to say, what would be an appropriate punishment for this act of treachery, for the act of betrayal, which in Dante's opinion was the worst sort of sin, obviously, by the way he ends up depicting that. Now, obviously, this is not the Bible. Obviously, this is Dante's depiction. But this is my point, is that we know that there will be one day a righting of all wrongs, and God will deal with each one in his perfect righteousness. I make these side points because what makes this so poignant, and the reason why Dante picks up on this picture, is because when you use something that is of the most close nature, a gesture of love, and you then turn it into an act of treachery, it is among the worst sorts of evil. The Greek word that is used here to describe him kissing Jesus actually can be defined as, and further expounded as, kissing him repeatedly. The word actually is from the Greek word phileo, to love. The word is used in a verb form to talk about loving or kissing someone. He's using an expression of love to betray Jesus. This is proof that great evil can be done under the pretense of affection and respect for Jesus. Right? Judas is doing something evil while he's outwardly showing he's doing it for Jesus. Now think for just a moment. Judas is not alone in this, is he? Think down through the ages of history. How many things have been done supposedly in the name of God that are not God's actions? Are not things that he would approve of? Maybe I say it that way. Think of Paul. Paul himself described his pre-converted state as one, according to zeal, persecuting the church. He says, I was zealous. And that zeal showed myself persecuting the church. Remember, Jesus, when he appears to then Saul on the road to Damascus, remember he even says to him, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says that persecution against the church is against me. His religious devotion had him taking actions against those who had the, the news of the one and only true gospel. Think today. How many terrorist acts are done in the supposed name of God? Think about even the Middle Ages, the Spanish Inquisition, where Christians were being slaughtered by the Roman Catholic Church. How about the Crusades? This can even be seen, though, in our everyday lives. It's not uncommon for people to say that they're doing something for God that is antithetical to what God has declared in His Word. Judas is not alone. 
Well, he shows up with a ridiculous show of force. He comes with a cohort. Now, a cohort is something on the order of 600 soldiers. Now, there's been some debate as to whether or not the entire cohort went out there to get Jesus. But we know that there's soldiers there. There are weapons there. They've got torches and lamps. These are probably soldiers that have been reserved in connection with the temple, because especially at feast days to make sure there were no riots, there were no problems. And so probably the Jewish leaders indicated to someone among the soldiers that we need to take in Jesus for questioning because he could be a threat to the peace. But Jesus had given them ample opportunity to arrest him during the day in plain sight. He was not in hiding. He asked them, why this show of force? You could have arrested me at any time. Each day I've been publicly preaching and teaching in the temple. He then goes on to say, I'm no robber. I've done nothing wrong. I've shown no violence. Jesus' ministry is peaceful and physically non-aggressive. It seems that this show of force was not properly fitted to the case. Might call this a, a situation of overkill. I mean, you don't bring a SWAT team to deliver a parking, parking ticket, right? You don't bring a Marine strike force to arrest a man who has no record of violence, has demonstrated compassion on the masses, and has done nothing wrong. It's ridiculous. But it's ridiculous from another side, too. The show of force is not properly fitted to the case from another direction. From one position, from one perspective, the show of force is exaggerated and unnecessary. But from another perspective, it's a woeful underestimation. Humanly speaking, 600 men to arrest one man was overkill. But divinely speaking, it was pathetic. Jesus explains that if all he needed to do was ask, and at his disposal there will be 12 legions of angels. A legion is around five to 6,000 individuals. We're talking about the difference of 600 men versus about 60,000 angels. That's about 100 angels for every man. And they consider the relative strength of a man versus an angel. How do you get at that? Well, at least we have one indication. In 2 Kings 19.35, a single angel of God slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Angel of God slays 185,000 men in one night. So whatever the relative power of angels are, take that times 60,000 and see if that can handle 600 guys. Then add to that, Jesus asked them, tell me who you come here for. Who are you seeking? Well, they say Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus responds by saying, I am. Now, a lot of our translations say it is I or I am the one or I am he. Understand the he or the one or all those. Those are implied words. It literally reads ego me in Greek, I am, which is fascinating. Again, the, the, you could use that expression just to say identify yourself as I'm the one that you're looking for. But given what John has done throughout the rest of his gospel, emphasizing these phrases, I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the door. I am the light. These kinds of phrases. And out here at the end, we see Jesus saying, not once, but twice, I am. And after he says it the first time, we're told that the soldiers reel backward and fall to the ground. Imagine the scene. <laughs> Jesus there. No weapons in his hands. 600 guys, torches, weapons, swords, staves. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth? 
I am. And the entire lot of them falls to the ground. Who's in control here? Who's in control here? The word, Greek word fell is interesting too, because the word is also utilized in points of battle. A soldier who falls to another soldier has been defeated in battle. I wonder if this is a play on words that John is saying. He's picturing all of the supposed power and might of Rome is felled by a single word from Jesus. You know, this is merely a glimpse of what will happen to everyone one day. Every knee will one day bow. Every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is akin to how John responded to his vision of Jesus in Revelation 1.17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But these soldiers fell backward as if vanquished. So even while Jesus is being arrested, He's the one that strides out to meet the accuser. He's the one that comes knowing the betrayal is about to occur. And then when He even just says the words, I am, all the troops fall to the ground. He's deliberately giving Himself over to His Father's purposes. So secondly, we see the second movement. The betrayer's deception is met with, point number two, the disciples' impulsivity. They're impulsive, the disciples. The disciples' impulsivity. And the first impulse we see is the impulse to fight. The impulse to fight. Luke twenty-two forty-nine. Now the ones around him, seeing what was about to happen, said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now remember, backtracking the story, there was a point where they were about to leave the upper room and they, there's two swords. He says, yeah, that's enough. Go ahead and take them. So they take these two swords. Now we don't know who has the other sword, but we know one of them is held by Peter, right? So the question comes to Jesus, should we strike with the sword? And it appears that Peter won't even wait long enough for an answer because he's already unseating his sword and he's going to chop off somebody's head. I have the feeling that Peter's intention was not merely to clip his ear. You know? I mean, this kind of action where you're coming down, I'm sure he wasn't like, ooh, I hope I just get his ear, right? He's probably coming down for a death blow, right? I'm just going to take somebody out. That's how I'm going to respond to this moment. He strikes, literally, to confront this evil that was upon them. He wanted to take a direct confrontation with them with physical force. But Jesus immediately rebukes Peter's action. He condemns this outward act of violence. MacArthur says it this way, Because Peter boasted too loudly, prayed too little, slept too much, and acted too fast, he seemed invariably to miss the point of what Jesus was saying and doing. As I thought about that, I'm like, ouch, is that a description of me too often? Boasting too loudly praying too little, sleeping too much, and acting too fast. The initial impulse is to fight, and Jesus stops it. And then followed on the tail of this is the impulse to flee. First they want to fight, then they want to flee. Matthew twenty six fifty six. then all the disciples leaving him fled. As soon as it becomes evident that Jesus will be arrested and Jesus won't permit them to take any other course of action to prevent it, they flee away, lest they be seen as resisting the authorities and be bound as well. It's interesting. 
that the disciples can move so quickly from fighting to flight. Fight to flight. They can do that so quickly from fighting to fleeing. The same man who had boasted, the same men who boasted, we'll never leave you, Jesus. We won't forsake you, Jesus. Oh, from one moment swinging swords, the next moment tucking tail and running. Ryle makes an interesting comment along these regards. He says, to suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. He's saying, it's easier to swing the sword in that account than it is to stay there, be arrested, and suffer. So if I can't fight, I'll run. He goes on, the passive graces of religion are far more rare and precious than the active graces. Work for Christ may be done from many spurious motives, from excitement, from emulation, from party spirit, from a love of praise. But suffering for Christ will seldom be endured from any but one motive, the grace and glory of God. Mark 14, 51 and 52. A certain man was following him, having been clothed in linen about his body. He was seized by it, and he fled away, leaving the linen behind, fleeing away naked. Now, the identity of this man is left anonymous. Some speculate, though, that it was Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. It's the only Gospel that includes the event, which is one of the reasons why that's thought. Also, we know in John's own Gospel, John doesn't refer to himself in the Gospel by his name. And so, we have a precedent for men doing this in the writing about themselves. We don't know for certain, but we have this young man who is flees away in haste, leaving even his garment behind. All this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. Behold, an hour, hour is, come, is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to your own home, and leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. John 16.32 So Jesus faces this opposition alone. For he must suffer alone and die alone. But he does all this so that those of us who know him as Lord and Savior will never be alone. But lastly, the disciples' impulsivity is countered by point number three, the Savior's concern. The Savior's concern. The Savior's concern. And I see at least four concerns that Jesus has in this text. The first one is protecting the endangered. Jesus is attempting to protect His own. And He succeeds in doing so. Protecting the endangered. He asks this this qualifying question. Who is it that you're seeking? And He says it twice. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And upon the second time, Jesus says, okay, you can have Me leave these men alone. You didn't come here for them. You came here for me. Take me only. Leave them be. He doesn't want to cause anything to interfere with his disciples. John explains that this is a fulfillment of Jesus' own words. The ones which you have given me, I have lost none of them. John 6.39 This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And we know that this has a fuller connotation beyond just this moment. But he's carrying for his disciples' physical life here at this particular junction. His chief concern here is not himself, but with his men. 
So we see Him protecting the endangered. Secondly, the Savior's concern is to heal the broken. To heal the broken. We read in Luke 22. Luke tells us something that the other Gospels do not record. Jesus says, no more of this. After Peter comes down with the sword, misses Malchus's head, but gets his ear. Jesus says, no more of this. Put it away. And then He touches Malchus's ear and heals it. Jesus explains that physical violence is not the means by which His victory will be achieved. So Jesus fixes the harm that Peter inflicted by miraculously healing Malchus's ear. By the way, this is the last recorded miracle of Jesus before His death and resurrection. Healing this man's ear at His own arrest. I'm sure this had no small effect on the soldiers that were attending to this. It might be the reason why they didn't haul off Peter, right? I mean, he's resisting Roman authority. He just chopped off somebody's ear. I wonder if they just forgot about Peter's active rebellion after watching Jesus miraculously heal the ear back to its initial condition. Third thing, Jesus came to rescue the perishing. To rescue the perishing. This is His concern. Matthew 26.52 All who take the sword will perish by the sword. All who take the sword will perish by the sword, Jesus says. You see, Judas and company represent the world and all of its lust for power and self-aggrandizement. Such rely on physical force to achieve their goals. But all such people will also lose their power by the same means. How long will you be strong enough to wield the sword? How long, if you betrayed another, will it be before you are betrayed yourself? Those who exert power and influence through the sword, typically lose that power and influence through the sword. These men, armed and coming to get Him, confront Jesus who is apparently helpless and unarmed, yet Jesus has invisible resources to encounter His foes. The victory that He would accomplish would provide a much better salvation than any physical altercation that would have happened on that occasion would have brought to pass. And so it must be with us. We must remember for ourselves that the conflict that we encounter, in every conflict that we encounter, our real war is spiritual in nature, not physical. The only weapons that apply are those that are spiritual in nature, therefore. Things like the armor of God that are described to us. Truth, righteousness, faith, the gospel, prayer. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When Jesus heals this slave's ear, and then He tells His men... Those who set forth for victory with the sword will die by the sword. He's ensuring that no one around there could claim that Jesus' intention was to achieve some political revolt against Rome or that He was organizing some terrorist organization. His kingdom was much bigger than any of this. Much bigger than anyone realized. And His victory would come through a means that none of them anticipated. For the means that Jesus would rescue and provide for the protection of His sheep, their ultimate healing, their ultimate rescue, would be by laying down His life in their place. 
And so the fourth thing we see that he cared about, you could say it one of two ways, drinking the cup, drinking the Father's cup, or fulfilling His Father's will. One and the same. His Father's will was that Jesus drink the cup. And we talked about time previous to this, by cup, He's referring to God's wrath poured out against sin. These events transpire because it was the Father's will that was coming to pass. Jesus says, the reason why you're going to arrest Me right now is because right now is your hour. Right now is your hour. The power of darkness is here. And this is darkness doing its worst. Satan sought to destroy the Messiah, to thwart God's plan of redemption by taking on the Savior with a full frontal assault. Yet even this dark hour was part of God the Father's plan. A plan by which God would demonstrate His righteousness and love a means by which He would be just and yet the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus tells Peter, put the sword away. The cup, the one which the Father has given to me, shall I not drink it? Do you not think I can appeal to my Father, have twelve legions of angels at my command? Your puny attempt at even hitting one slave? But how do you then think the Scriptures might be fulfilled? Jesus says, How will it be fulfilled if this does not happen, Jesus says. Carson says it well. Jesus is not a pathetic martyr, buffeted by the ill winds of a cruel fate, but voluntarily and purposefully He heads towards His death with full knowledge of what is about to befall Him. He is not Caesar, eh, tu Brute? He's not taken up by some plot that He wasn't aware of. Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He plunges forward towards it. Jesus says in John twelve twenty seven, Now my soul has become, tro- become troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He says, the reason you're arresting me is because it is your hour. It is the power of darkness. This is the worst that hell can throw. This is Satan's plot unfolding. We see that it is all under the auspices of God's greater sovereignty. Jesus must drink the cup of God's wrath. He is to be the propitiatory sacrifice. His, by His stripes, we are healed. Isaiah 53, Jesus says, the, 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 the words of the prophets are fulfilled in this. And it, you can't help but think of Isaiah 53. Certainly there's other places. But Isaiah 53, surely He Himself our griefs bore, our sorrows He carried. We, we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him. And by His scourging we are healed. See, in order to satisfy God's wrath, God would lay, or Jesus, God the Son would lay down His life for His sheep. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me. Nope. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received 
from my Father? No, Jesus has the authority to lay down His life and He has the authority to take back up His life. Jesus did say, this is your hour. This is the power of darkness. But note, it is only an hour. The hour is limited. Darkness will not have the final word. Remember Job. God allows Satan to wreak havoc on Job's life. But don't neglect that fact. Only by God's permission. And when it was time to restore Job, Satan is powerless to stop it. In Revelation, we see that while Satan is chomping at the bit to destroy God's people, he's on a leash. Even literally, he's described as bound for some season. The timing of which we can debate at another time. But the fact of him being bound is not debated, it's in the Scriptures. So he's bound in some sense, at some time, in some way. And then he's subsequently loosed in some way, at some time, and eventually completely, utterly defeated. You see, darkness may have an hour, but it won't have the last one. And what is to follow is everlasting light and joy and happiness all to God's glory. Because Jesus triumphed through the hour of darkness rising victorious from the grave, proving to be our champion, we have the quiet assurance that whatever the hour, whatever hour of darkness we might encounter, it will not last forever. The enemies of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may have their hour, but they will have no more. As Ryle puts it, the longest night has its morning. The sharpest winters are followed by spring. The heaviest storms have been changed for blue sky. Have you ever wondered why people like us live in areas that are threatened by natural disasters? Well, we might say that anywhere you go, you'll find some disaster. If it's not a tsunami or a hurricane, it might be a tornado or a fire or an earthquake or something else. And there are some people who can't choose where they live, either by citizenship or by finances. But there are other people who choose to live in areas that are buffeted by storms and difficulties and trials. Why do they live there? Because they know the storms don't last forever. And there's a beauty that follows them. We who are in Christ have this promise. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So while we'll always remember Judas's kiss as the ultimate act of treachery and betrayal, a veritable kiss of death, may we also remember that what Judas meant for evil, what the religious leaders meant for evil, what the Roman authorities meant for evil, and what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Judas was truly the son of perdition, of destruction, and he will bear the guilt of his sin. Yet God utilized Judas's kiss of death to ultimately kiss those who, who trust in Christ with life. Because Jesus received the kiss of death, we can receive the kiss of life. In the words of Psalm 85.10, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The ultimate way, place that that happened was the cross where Jesus' perfect holy wrath was displayed and His marvelous, the marvelous riches of His love and grace and mercy were as well. Let's be honest. We all have shown our rebellion. None of us inherently are any better than Judas. 
If God was to deal with us according to our sin, we would, none of us would be found righteous. All of us have turned aside. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have the righteousness required to restore right relationship with God and to enjoy His fellowship forever. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, demonstrated His love in sending His Son to die in the place of vile, rebellious, treacherous sinners. God has made a way in which a sinner's sin can be paid for and removed as far as east is from the west. And the righteousness that is required to stand in God's presence can be gained. And all of that is answered in a simple, glorious word, Jesus. It's all found in Jesus. The One who took the kiss of death that we might experience the kiss of life. Oh, how I hope that you will repent of your sin. Oh, how I hope that God would grant you repentance and faith in His Son. To look to His Son, who is the way, the truth, and life. For no one comes to the Father but through Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your glorious grace, Your mercy, Your love. We in no way deserve the expressions of love and forgiveness which You have bestowed upon those who trust in Your Son. It is all of grace and unmerited favor. We pray even in these quiet moments that should there be anyone in this room who upon examining their own hearts and minds would say, I, I don't think I know Jesus. I know of Him. Perhaps I've even attended church quite a bit. Perhaps I've read the Bible quite a bit. Perhaps I've even been in Christian circles for quite a while. But if I'm honest about my heart and my life, it demonstrates no fruit of genuine repentance, no fruit of righteousness that's been worked inside of my soul by the Holy Spirit. If there's someone there, I pray, Lord, that I thank You first of all for Your grace that they would see it, that they would recognize it, and then we ask further that You would grant them a new heart with new desires, that they would love and long for Jesus. They would see in Him the sweet savor of life, abundant, eternal life. And Lord, I thank You that for all of us, all of us who are Your children, we know that we will encounter trials and there will be Hours of darkness that sometimes we encounter individually. We're thankful that that hour is limited. And that it will be followed by tremendous light and glory and joy and happiness with You. Keep our mind fixed on these truths. Keep our heart close to Yours, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.